In the early 90s, communication scholars began talking about the old concept of the newspaper. You know, those things on paper with ink. Terry Mattingly speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The concept behind this, they called it the Daily We. That there was supposed to be a media product that we would consume that would help us learn about other people in our community, in our nation, and that we would at least be consuming some of the same information for the sake of debate, discourse, etc. The internet is absolutely brilliant at destroying the daily we. You can listen to Terry Mattingly's presentation, Making the Case for News Discernment, on an audio DVD of both of our 2017 Making the Case conferences. We'll send it to you for a year-end tax-deductible donation of $300. Just click the DVD logo at issuesetc.org. What is this? It doesn't make much sense. They sing it like a pop song. This is a touchy subject. Self-esteem. You want your children to have a a healthy self-regard for themselves. You don't want them walking around depressed about themselves or in a state of self-loathing. You want to encourage your children. But how do you do that without, well, what's happened lately, creating a generation of kids who believe that There's a trophy waiting at the end of every sporting match, regardless of whether they win or lose or even play. And that when they go out to do whatever it is they're doing, they're doing it the best that anybody ever has. And any kind of criticism, well, what happens? They melt like the proverbial snowflake. So how do you teach your children proper self-esteem? Or is that even the best word for it? We're going to be talking with Pastor Jonathan Fisk, it's part 11 of our series on raising Christian children in the age of secular progressivism. He's host of a radio program called Sharper Iron, and he's author of the book Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break as Often as Possible. Jonathan, welcome back to Issues Etc. Yeah, it's good to be back. Thank you. A lot of people would say the problem is that we've taught self-esteem. We have taught a generation of millennials and younger to expect a trophy for everything and to believe that they are the best at everything they do. They'd say that's the problem, self-esteem. Yeah, and in one sense, I could not agree more. Anybody who has not read the book, The Narcissism Epidemic by Gene Twenge, and cares about raising their children, it really needs to do so. It is It is a challenging book for particularly the generation of young parents right now. I think it, it has something to say to all of American culture, but we are, ha, to be narcissistic about it, the most narcissistic generation that, that ever there was, and we have a good chance of raising one worse than ourselves. But just because the self-esteem culture which has in many ways misguided both us and then the way that we're, we're raising our own children with what you just said there, the sort of overt emphasis on my own value. Just because we've, we've misplaced or, or, or taken a bad approach to teaching this thing called self-esteem does not mean that as you raise a child, you need to teach them how to esteem themselves, right? Like we hear that word self-esteem and we assume it means teach them to think they're great no matter what. Well, no, see, that's bad. (laughs) Uh, But 
But to esteem oneself is to understand oneself, to, to see oneself in a proper or an honest or a realistic light, which in one sense does mean without pride, learning to recognize what you are good at. What are your strengths? How do your hands work best to serve your neighbor in the world around you? And then just as honestly to assess how do your hands perhaps not work? I remember a story a former pastor friend of mine told me about how his mother was making him take piano lessons and, and he always felt bad that he, he was never very good at it. And as an adult, his organist told him, she was torturing you. Look at your thumbs. She should have made you play the tuba. And he always felt so much better after that when he realized his fingers, and if you looked at his thumbs, they were bigger than a key. So like, yeah, it would have been tough to play the piano. You know, there, there are things to assess about ourselves that are the way they are. And, and to esteem that, both in its value and, and in what it's not as good at, is, I would say, one of the most challenging things to teach a child, particularly in a culture which is going to tell them to esteem themselves as great no matter what. There is a place for teaching a child to respect oneself, to, to treat oneself with the value given to humanity, which God gives to all mankind. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. There is also very much the need to teach identity in Jesus and how God values you, no matter what, because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. But this has to be done in this context in which a false self-esteem, a self-esteem which is indeed the imbibing of narcissistic pride, is what most people mean and what they're actually doing as they raise the, the generation of the citizens of the next the next kind of era of American culture. So, yes, I couldn't agree more, but just because someone's abusing self-esteem doesn't mean we actually have to deal with it. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. It's part 11 of our series, Raising Christian Children in an Age of Secular Progressivism. Today, we're talking about self-esteem. When we come back, maybe we shouldn't be calling it self-esteem. Maybe we should be calling it unwarranted unconditional positive self-regard, but it's also a deeply depressed generation. We'll be right back. There's a hunger still unsatisfied Our weary eyes still stray to the horizon Go down this road we've been so many times Where doctrine is life. You're listening to Issues Etc. Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's part 11 of our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism today, teaching self-esteem. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. Jonathan... We've been using this term self-esteem, but maybe maybe we should be saying something like unconditional, unwarranted, positive self-regard, this generation that just kind of looks uncritically at itself. But it, ironically, and I want you to address this, it's also a deeply depressed, clinically depressed generation as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I want to emphasize your point about, you know, o overly positive. One of the, the stories I remember from the narcissism epidemic is how they did a, it was a study that showed that American students do far worse than most first world countries at math and, and their math scores, but they feel better about their math scores than anybody else, right? So they're the most convinced that they can do math, 
but they actually can't, right? And so there, there is this misguided trust in self, which can only ultimately be called narcissism. A love of self that would cause one to ignore the reality around you as the story of Narcissus who stares into the pool at his own reflection so long he finally becomes a flower from, from Greek mythology says. But then what she said as well here, so the more you are staring in the pool of yourself, telling yourself the lie you've been told to tell yourself that, that I am good enough, right? I am strong enough and, and golly gee, people like me, right? The, the kind of mockery of self-help from, from Saturday Night Live there, the more you find nothing to hold on to, the more you can't really assess yourself honestly, and so you your failures almost get to be larger than ever, or your identity becomes identity-less. And so ever since we started down this path of the, the false self-esteem pursuit, that we're going to make everybody good and better and be the, the greatest country ever by telling everybody we're good no matter what. The, the, as long as, as we've been traveling down that path, you've also seen a mirror path of the so-called search for self. So so I'm supposed to love myself, but to do that, I have to find myself. And then I go off and I look for myself in everything except for the vocations into which I've been born, right? My sexuality, whether I'm born man or woman, right? And my family, my lineage, who my parents are. You know, I, instead I must rebel against everything my parents are and go off and become some other thing that is uniquely and entirely just me, as if a human could exist in a vacuum, which we can't. To to truly esteem yourself is to know, to, to use another you know uh, kind of common phrase, you are a chip off the old block, for good or for ill, with your sin and with your strengths. And to, to come to terms with that reality is to find your, and now we're just really talking first article here, right? To find your human identity, to, to find what God has made you as a creature with all of your members. And then having found that, to assess it, again, not for yourself or some magical, mystical purpose you're going to divine as if you're God, but to assess it as a gift to the world around you, that your hands and your feet and your eyes and your thoughts and, and everything that you do as you grow is a gift first to your parents, and then from your parents to your own children, and then from that family, that community which is born there in this marvel of procreation, to the, 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 the village that grows up around you, in which you will have a various vocations, things which you're good at, that you can then set your mind to for the, for the sake of your neighbor, and which generally will bring you some amount of joy as well, unless you end up a slave, and there's certainly a fallen creation, so it doesn't always work out the way we'd like it to, right? But But there is... There is more purpose, if I can say it this way, once you give up the search for self and instead learn to esteem yourself as the vocations given you, to which great hints your sexuality and your family are kind of the big hat tips from God. Hey, look, I've put you here. Grow from this place. Now, let's bring this back for a second to then how do you teach this to your five-year-old or your 12-year-old or your 18-year-old or your college student? In an age that's telling them, leave the nest, ignore everybody else, you're a special tulip butterfly flower that does everything perfect all on its own and no one can hold you down, least of all your parents, don't listen to them. 
it's it's kind of in the water, right? So how do we begin to prepare the child to navigate that world with discernment, to not listen to the lies about how they're great no matter what, while neither telling them that they're bad no matter what, right? In, in the sense that you have some of these secular groups that would say that Christians are, are, are child abusers because we tell our children that they're sinners. We tell them that they're bad no matter what, which is true on a certain level, but they hear us saying, you know, you worthless child, you deserve to be locked in a closet and beaten, right? And that that's all we could ever give the child. Well, no. Raising a first article child is to, is more than that. Yes, they're sinners. Yes, they need to assess themselves with the Ten Commandments and find that they are in need of repentance. But they also need to learn how to be artists and theologians and doctors and lawyers and all these other things. And that involves being honest about the created gifts you have, which are real and good and sustained by God and here to be explored and pursued and, and lifted up. So no easy task this, right? Then you have said something here that I think kind of gives us a good direction to head. You said where God has put you is the place to begin. You said in family, of course, in the family of God as well. So I think we're headed toward a discussion of Christian vocation, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, that, that you stand in a place. And, and if you want to know where it is, just open your eyes and look around right now. You're in a place and there are people around you. And so you want to know what God wants you to do? Live according to the Ten Commandments toward those people. And you're going to, you're going to have plenty to do. Think about what their bodies need. Think about what their marriages and their, in their community needs. Think about what their property needs. Think about ways that, that you can serve, right? And, but there's more to it than, than just that because, Vocation spreads out from this moment in time to be uh, locations, again, of identity. And here's where you want to talk about the destruction of the family. I mean, it it started before the homosexual lobby and the the transgender agenda. Think about this this idea that for, for me, this was just assumed as it was as I grew up. It was you're not going to do what your father did because that would be wrong. Which is a really weird thing to think about, right? Whereas most of human history understood a vocation of a father as one that would be passed on to the child. And, and to be sure, there may have been some abuse of this. You know, you're going to do what your father did no matter what, because if you don't, that would be wrong. Well, that, that might not be the right way to look at it either. But we almost kind of flipped to the, not almost, we flipped to the other side. We fell off the horse on the other side. Where it really became like a parent's worst thing they could do is encourage their child to do something, <laughs> right? Vocationally. And where this really strikes hard, at least in my own mind, is a story of, of another friend, and I hope you won't mind me sharing this. I won't share names, but, and I won't go into specifics, but he is a, a son of a man who owns a business, a very successful business. And the discussion about going into business with his father never really was brought up. It never crossed his mind until after he'd moved out and moved away and, and, and was trying to figure out what am I supposed to do with my life? I'm not really sure. I kind of like the idea of business and it's like, oh, wait a minute. My dad runs a business. Hey, why start one from the ground up when I could help my dad and, and, and he could kind of half retire? You know, it, but none of that was native to either of their thinking. And only later were they able to come to think, that, oh, maybe father can pass on to the son what has happened. Now, this is to me, this is just an example, right? This is not something that has to happen. But it's it's that who your parents are and what they do 
is going to be who you are and what you do. Not not mirror-like, right? But the genes are there. If your parents love music and are constantly singing, it's very unlikely that you hate music, right? It could be, I suppose, but very unlikely. So to, to see your vocation as first, something you receive in identity, in the genes and the, the culture of your family, which then you are given to pass forward, to, to retain this, this is, this is kind of the first step. The second step is to remember that Christianity is part of that. Maybe it isn't for you. Maybe you came to faith as an adult, but then it, it's, Christianity becomes part of that. And so part of passing the faith forward, part of caring about hearth and altar, right, is to care about the hearth and that at the hearth, in the home, your your identity in Christ is also a vocation and a duty that it informs how you look at the rest of these vocations. I'm not merely a chip off the old block, but I owe my father and mother to respect, love, and cherish them as gifts from God. I know I owe my children to raise them with the authority that's given me as a gift from God to them to prepare them to use their hands for good. All of this kind of vocational theology is, I think, the right way to teach self-esteem, to esteem oneself as a creation built into a created order in which humanity is never alone, but identifies itself as part of a greater whole, which certainly, sin, death, and the devil, the tribulation, the present age, that's part of that. But at the same time, we still stand here. Jesus didn't leave us to sit on logs and wait for him. He left us to serve our neighbors and to believe his coming will overcome it all while we do. And all of that is what I want to impart as an identity in baptism, of course, uh, to my to all my children, and frankly, I want to believe it myself. It's it's not so easy to believe <laughs> in the present age. Depression hits adults as well as children, and uh, and the lies of self esteem are also likewise as deceptive to adults as they are to to our progeny. I want to come back to baptism in a moment, but you said something there that I think we need to kind of loop back around. We had spoken earlier about how people go looking for themselves; they try to find themselves as though. Either it's out there someplace to be discovered or it's in me someplace to be discovered, the real me or the real purpose for my life or something like that. Aren't we really talking about, and I think this is another feature of this generation that we've discussed, previous generations as well, but maybe this generation to a greater degree, an isolation from others, a disconnected in a connected age from others. What do you think? Another great book, I, I can't remember the author, Bowling Alone, a, a study of American life, you know, that, that you would go and do this tremendously public thing, bowling, you do it in teams, but you, you do it alone, right? Because we've, we've so isolated ourselves from each other. So yeah, the, the quest for self all alone is a fool's errand because without other humans, I am nothing. Without my parents, I am nothing. Without progeny, I die and I go into the dust. Without the church as the real family of God and community, I, I, I again, it, it is futility unto death. To search for self out in the midst of the wind is to believe that I am a God, that I am the, the maker of my own destiny, and that, and this is just madness to say, and each one of us, all seven billion, all have these magical divine destinies from, from forever where we're all going to change the world. You know, that's what's destroying the world. Right? And not believing, not believing that the real 
the real self God wants to give me. And he, you are. You are a gift to yourself from God, but not for yourself. And, and you got to hear that, right? God created you to be, and that is good. But he did not create you to be looking in a mirror. The gift of you to you is not for you. It's for those around you. Those who, again, your family is kind of the, the nearest uh, circle of this, but it goes out to your entire community. Everybody that from your your city to your to your state to your uh, your country to the world, that reality that is there, you will find more value in this. You will find more contentment in this and more joy in this than some magical search for a destiny that that nobody has written, but you're going to kind of find again out in the wind. And in this, it's the it's the dirty stuff. It's, it's the thorny and the thistly stuff that really is what life is about. It's, it's the facing the, the broken, cursed vocations that we've been given. Child, parent, husband, wife, neighbor. It's facing those and doing the good work even though the thistles make me bleed and the sweat falls from my brow and I know I'm still going to die anyway. I can still see the good of the rose past the thorns. I can still see the good of the human who my neighbor is past my neighbor's hatred of me. And I can do all of this because I've been bought, right? I've been redeemed from the futility of my mind by the renewal of the mind in the grace which Jesus pours out with his love toward us. It's it's a it, as opposed to the fool's errand quest to find myself in myself. It becomes the gift of finding myself without ever seeing me, right? Finding myself in the face of my neighbor, in the face of my parents, in the face of my child. And there, as I decrease and they increase, the whole order of creation is brought back to what it's supposed to be. Now, I'm not saying we're actually going to achieve this here, right? We believe it's achieved in Jesus, and so we fight for it here, knowing that when he comes again, you know, hand is only going to be used for what it's meant to be used for. Heart will only be used for what it's meant to be used for. Mind will only be used for what it's meant to be used for, and all these neighbors who now are my enemies are redeemed in Christ with me to be truly neighbors, countrymen, and friends, and, and to, to, to look for that, to hope in that, to strive for that, to repent of my own breaking of that. This is, this is Christianity, right? It is, it is to esteem myself and the world rightly and see the answer in Christ. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. It's part 11 of our series, Raising Christian Children in an Age of Secular Progressivism. Today, we're talking about teaching self-esteem. When we come back, we'll turn to the subject of baptism, how it expands the notion of the family that we belong to. We'll also be talking about how it expands the idea of who we are. Pastor Fisk has authored the book, Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break As Often As Possible. You'll find a link to this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Listen On Demand or call Concordia Publishing House. It's kind of a primer on uh, responding to uh, that kind of mushy moralism that passes for religion in America today, broken seven Christian rules that every Christian ought to break as often as possible. Concordia Publishing House's toll-free number any weekday during regular business hours, 
pastors are the ones who are getting in the way of what the Spirit wants to do. Pastor Chris Rosebro speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. The Spirit really wants to take the church and supercharge it and cause this worldwide global renewal to occur and for billions of souls to be harvested for Jesus. But your pastor, your pastor wears clerical collars. You sing hymns. You're out of date. You're in the way of the Spirit. So give way. Get those old wineskins out and it's time for the new wineskins to come in. You can listen to Pastor Rosebro's teaching, Making the Case Against Modern-Day Prophets and Apostles, on an audio DVD from the 2017 Making the Case Conferences. We'll send it to you for a year-end donation of $300. Issuesetc.org. Click the audio DVD. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Tyler Arnold at Christ Lutheran in Platte Woods, Kansas City, Missouri. We are privileged to serve our Lord in word and sacrament through the historic liturgies of the church. Do join us for divine service at 8 and 1045 and adult Bible study and Sunday school at 930. Each Wednesday evening, we have Vespers at 7 p.m. Our address is 6700 Northwest 72nd Street or call us at 816-741-0483. You can find us on the web at christlc.net. Come and be our guest at and with Christ. It's tough to be Lutheran in America these days. Our families, our schools and churches, even our most deeply held beliefs and values are under fire. We need unchanging truth in a world full of confusion. The Lutheran Witness magazine can help. For less than a quarter a day, get the best of Lutheran reflection on faith and life, theology and culture delivered monthly right to your mailbox. Learn more at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the contemporary world from a Lutheran Christian perspective. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Pastor Jonathan Fisk is our guest. Part 11 of our series on raising Christian children in an age of secular progressivism. Today we're talking about teaching self-esteem. I wanted to return to the subject of baptism, if we could, Jonathan, because there's a vocation that's common to all men. We could talk about vocation being a gift of God to both the believer and the unbeliever, but there's the vocation of baptism that is unique and exclusive to Christians, and it expands the idea, both of our identity, but also of, of the family to whom we belong. Isn't that interesting? So so we're, I, I've just kind of made this case that your identity as human, before we talk Christianity, cannot escape family. And that to know who you are is to know who your parents are. To, to the level that, and I'm going to go on a little aside here, I, I, I don't know who taught me this early, but but it was sort of this idea that the, the surest way to become just like your parents is to say, I'm nothing like my parents, I'll never be anything like my parents. Because you basically ignore all of the habits that you want to change and they're going to come out of you as you ignore them, as opposed to saying and embracing, I am my father's son. That's actually the path to changing some of the, say, bad habits or bad patterns that you would, you would like to change uh, and, and no longer pick up. So, so you are the product of your family for, for good or for ill. 
Now, isn't it interesting that if you deny that, then it's hard to see how baptism works. Because <laughs> baptism is doing the same thing. It's adoption. It's pulling you into a different family and saying you are no longer a member or only a member, but really no longer a member of the family of Adam. You are no longer a son of the world of death. You have become instead a son of the new Adam, a son of the world of life. You, you have put on a different name, right? You, you've been washed with a name that is not your own, but now is your own. And so just like a child, a, a lonely, poor, impoverished, and heck, ugly child sitting in an orphanage, the Father has come along and looked upon you and loved you. And in loving you, has made you lovable and brought you then into his house, placed upon you the ring of his his signet on your finger, put the robe over your back, killed the fattened calf and said, you're my son now, my, my true son with whom I am well pleased. But all of this happens, of course, as you said, Todd, so clearly and so important to remember, outside of you, all of this happens in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, which is given to you, put upon you like a garment in in holy baptism. And we can, you know, you could talk forever about baptism, and there's all sorts of places where Christians disagree about baptism. But, but you know, Paul in Colossians, he, he kind of sets this whole set of identity in chapter 3 about the new self, the new man that you put on in baptismal language. He talks about you being raised with Christ, seated at his right hand with your mind set on heavenly things, dead in yourself and alive to God in your Christ. In Christ. But he ties this all to baptism language quite quite directly right that you have you have put on the new self in baptism that you've been raised with him and this is going back to Colossians 2 in baptism which leads you then in three to have this new identity this new self-esteem which would strive to fight against some of the things you find in you some of your your sinful vocations sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire covetousness which is idolatry right these are sinful places sinful stands that you naturally make but the new identity adopted into the family of god washed with a different name strives to fight against these things yeah you once walked in them but now you put away anger wrath malice slander obscene talk you don't seek to lie because you have become one with this new Christ who is all in all, and you put on in its place a family heritage, a lineage, right? An inheritance. This is all language of family, which amazingly we've rejected so fully in the created order. How does this make sense then in the second article world that we would put on the inheritance of Jesus to be holy, beloved, compassionate, meek, patient, bearing with each other, forgiving each other because we've been called into one new body, a body not of Adam's line, but of Jesus' line. It is in understanding the created order, right, that the family inheritance and the esteeming of myself as vocated by God from my parents to my children, that all of this language of my identity in Christ in baptism makes sense. So we as Christians want to go then from this language of identity and family in Christ in baptism back to our families, back to the created order and see this stuff was good. Yeah, we've abused it, but it was good. And now my great task, my great fourth commandment task is to pass this esteeming of the self as part of family 
and as good for neighbor into my child, which starts with baptism, it starts with forgiveness of sins, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It, it continues on with, with love, love which abides, right? Not as if this is something I'm going to earn. My fa- You don't earn your place in your family, right? As something which I do because this is the way we do things. And we talk this way to our kids a little bit, and, and it, it doesn't always necessarily work, but it's like we don't do things that way in our family. Yes, yes, other people do that, but that's not how we do it. We're Fisks. We do it this way. And in the best case scenario, they, they believe that. And they do. They see that as part of their identity. All the more so for the Christian walk, right? That this is how we do things. This is how we walk as Christians. And, and as parents who are Christians, we want to impart both those things, both those things, culture of family and then Christianity as worldview to our children. And I, and I, I think the place, the locus of this is self-esteem which of course is abused absolutely <laughs> but but which we can't we can't ignore it's still a place it's still part of the created order so we got to redeem it we got to buy it back with the right understanding that we find in in first second third article creedal theology i'm going to give you an example of what happens commonly now in my life and i want you to tell me is this wrong so uh, I'm blessed with two beautiful little grandsons, and uh, one of them, the first one, he's very conversational, so we do a lot of talking together. The other one is just babbles. I still talk to him, but a lot of my conversations with my grandson, especially very early in the morning, every morning, go like this. You are the best little boy in the world. I'm just gushing with superlatives. It's how I really think of him. Uh, I know, Jonathan, that... If I kept that message up the rest of his life, that kind of unconditional positive regard we've talked about here, (laughs) the rest of his life, I could seriously screw up his mind. I could make him into one of those snowflakes we talked about earlier on. So where's the balance between this kind of parental, or in my case, grandparental, gushing love of superlatives that are intended to communicate just how much I adore this child Hmm. and ruining his life with (laughs) the idea that he really is that the earth and the moon and the stars really do orbit around him. Hmm. I, I, I love your transparency there, Todd. And I thank you for it because I think it's important to realize we all can keep getting better. (laughs) <laughs> at this kind of stuff, right? I, I agree with you. It's probably not the best thing to say. So imagine imagine how if you tell a child and he believes you firmly, because that's what children do, they trust what you say. You are the best little boy in the world. Or let's let's go worse. Let's say you're such a perfect little boy. You're such a perfect little boy. You tell him that over and over and over again. What place does his mind have for the moment when you say, no, that's wrong. Stop it. He has no reference to try to to understand it. A moment ago, he was perfect. What is he now? You know, has he lost your love? Right. And so it is, I hate to be a grammar nerd, but we're people of the word, we're people of the scriptures. We've got to care about what words say because they mean things. And so I'm going to, I'm going to draw from this book, Narcissism Epidemic here again. And the the phrase that they were, that that I think is a good example here of this uh, is telling a child you are special which is very common to say, you are special, you are special, you are special, which is kind of in the same direction of what you were saying. And and what they said was, look, it's not that the child doesn't have a specialty in some way. It's where does that really fit that it's true? So instead of telling your child, you're so special, say, 
you're so special to me. And it changes everything about what you just said. And it puts it in the relationship, right? Because the reason I think my child is special is because she is or he is special to me. They're connected to me in a very amazing way. And so something like, I couldn't want a better grandson than you is a way to say to your child or your grandchild how much you love them, how you do think they're great in so many ways. You go even a step further and try to get, I mean, you talk about talking to a babbling baby. The science, I think, is out there on this for you to go find. They really benefit from you talking to them like they're adults all the way up from from three months old to, to 30 years old. Treat them like an adult and just use real conversation. And it's amazing how much it benefits them. So try to get specific. Instead of, to my to my grandchild, you're the best little boy in the world, say, I really like this thing you're doing right now, and it makes me want to say I love you so much. What is that thing? I'll, I'll just use one from, from my youngest child at home. She recently, she's five years old, and she recently has begun using language that I personally just think is well beyond her years. Uh, she said something the other day, it was just along the lines of, I wouldn't do that because that would be an accident. And I just... Uh, that she even had that thought. I don't know, it's stupid. I'm a doting parent. But rather than say, you're the best child in the world, say, I love your use of language. That's wonderful. I like it when you do that. And so what you do is you affirm not just their identity, but their identity tied to a positive behavior, which is how they relate to another human positively, which also gives you place for when you have to reprimand a negative behavior, saying that this is a, you know, there's a place for this behavior, which does reflect on your sinful identity and and repentance becomes something that you can have a, a, again, a, a mind for or a way to engage. So I I'm really curious, Todd, after, you know, opening up like that in my response, I'm curious if you got a response to me on that. No, great advice. Fantastic advice. It's a lesson that I learned with my kids, but you got to learn it all over again when your kids start having kids. Before we let you go, Jonathan, tell us about a Reformation tour that you're going to be leading next year. Right. So, so Pastor Brian Wolfmuller has got this uh, theological tour mini company going. He went on a, a Germany tour last summer and fall for the Reformation. He's also leading one to Greece next year as well, but he wants to kind of keep this ball rolling and he knows there was interest in more tours of Germany. So next summer uh, from June I know I have the days. Yeah, June 1 through 12th, I'll be leading a tour of Lutherland, which isn't just vacationing. This thing is going to be a theological tour de force with hymn studies and songs on the bus and Bible studies and devotions to kind of couch every day along with a guided history of the life of Luther, the Reformation events that matter, and how this all ties to your walk as a Christian in today's present evil age. You can find more information about my tour at wolfmuller.co slash reformation 501 and if you want the less exciting tour to Greece with Pastor Wolfmuller you can you can kind of click the links there and find his his tour as well I promise you though it won't be quite as exciting although I'm sure you know you know you'll see some nice places so you can learn more about Pastor Fisk's 12-day reformation tour June 1st through the 12th in 2018 at issuesetc.org click listen on demand Pastor Jonathan Fisk is host of a radio program called Sharper Iron and author of the book, Broken, Seven Christian Rules That Every Christian Ought to Break. 
as often as possible. Jonathan, thanks for being our guest. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Todd. The Lutheran Witness Magazine interprets the contemporary world from a Lutheran perspective. They have a January issue that's coming out that deals with technology in the Christian life. You can get six either print or digital issues for $6.99. You can find out more at cph.org slash try Lutheran Witness, cph.org slash try Lutheran Witness, Lutheran Witness Magazine. When we come back, we're going to spend the remainder of today's issues, etc., talking about Martin Luther, purgatory, and the conservative Reformation. Martin Luther rejected the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Did he reject purgatory? Pastor Christopher Jackson will be our guest. He's authored a recent column for First Things titled Luther's Purgatory. Stay tuned. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy. We have three weeks left in 2017, and we need $75,000 to cover our projected expenses for the year. Please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift to support this worldwide outreach. You can contribute by check, make your check payable to issues, etc., and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also make a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for thinking of us at the end of 2017. Comfort, comfort, ye my people, for unto us a child is born. Good news of great joy, the titles of Christ, the Magnificat. These are some of the Christmas card themes produced by Ad Crusum. Send a greeting card this Christmas season that's centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. AdCrusum.com, confessing the faith through art and word. AdCrusum.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Give the gift of time this Christmas with a gift certificate from The Cleaning Authority. Call toll-free 1-866-827-0062 or visit thecleaningauthority.com. A happy wife is a happy life. A Christmas gift certificate from your favorite house cleaning service, The Cleaning Authority, 866-827-0062 or thecleaningauthority.com. Lutheranism in the public square. You're listening to Issues Etc. I'm delighted to be chairman of Preach the Word Project, a project of our synod to strengthen the preaching of all of us pastors in the synod. We know how eternally important that is. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Carl Fikencher talking about the new Preach the Word Project. So we've put together a program of 12 modules that will be coming out this year and over the next three years on a variety of preaching topics for pastors to do together with two other pastors, two guys they trust, two guys they feel comfortable with, written materials and very fine video quality materials that are now becoming available. 
Preach the Word helps pastors work together to improve their preaching with several resources and by interacting with seminary professors and fellow preachers. Find out more at lcms.org slash preach the word. lcms.org slash preach the word. Preaching is challenging business. We all can use some fresh ideas. lcms.org slash preach the word.